made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. Just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters is up next. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the third program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about two Maines. Can we bridge the divide? We'll talk about the cultural, demographic, and economic differences that define the two Maines and how those differences are sharpening political differences. Are there only two Maines? We'll be talking about taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. We'll have that phone number for you a little bit later in the show. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests this morning. They're all in the studio with us today. Alan Karen is the owner of Karen Communications and the author of Maine's Next Economy and Reinventing Maine's Government. Welcome, Alan. Glad to be here. Also with us is Aaron Rhoda. Aaron is the editor of Maine Focus, an award-winning journalism and community engagement initiative at the Bangor Daily News. Glad to have you here, Aaron. Thank you very much. And finally, Matt Stone. Matt is a journalist and writer on the Bangor Daily News Maine Focus team. Glad to have you here as well, Matt. Great to be here. Uh, author John Green, who I think writes young adult fiction, wrote... There is no them. There are only facets of us. But in this era of high partisanship, it sometimes seems as though we are irretrievably divided. In the recent presidential election, Maine split its electoral college votes for the first time in history. Is this an indication that Maine is more divided now than it has been in modern times? When we're discussing the two mains, which two are we talking about? Are the divisions political, economic, cultural, or geographic? Where is the boundary, and are there only two? Do we still share more in common as Mainers than what divides us? We're going to explore these questions and more on our show today. So let me start with you, Matt. What is the origin of that phrase, the two mains? How far back in our history does it go, and what did people mean when they first used it? I'm sure it goes back uh, in in attitude uh, further than this, but in in terms of incorporating this concept into politics and state policy, uh, the the Brennan the Brennan administration in the '80s uh, began using this um, as a planning concept through through the state planning office as what I um, you know what I believe to be a very imperfect way of describing the economic transition that we were seeing uh, in the second half of the 20th century and have continued to see evolve uh, to this day. Mm, yeah, I was uh, just reading a book by or about Joshua Chamberlain, who of course was our uh, governor um, back in the late 1860s. And, um, and it talked about how he would have despised this idea of two mains, um, having fought in the Civil War to try to um, not divide the country. Um, and so while maybe that idea of two mains was not, 
you know, talked about in that specific way back then, there was, um, you know, a lot of discussion about how to bridge the divides um, among different parts of the state, uh, even back then. And so, of course, we know that under um, Chamberlain's authority, uh, that was when we um, when we uh, first started to we started to think about inviting people from Sweden to mm-hmm. come up north and and populate um, Aroostook County, which became New Sweden. Uh, and so even back then, there was this discussion of, you know, how do we populate our northern places and how do we, uh, considering that a lot of our urban areas are in the south. Has it always been just a north-south thing, Alan? Well, I'm going to offer a slightly bigger historic view yeah. on the question. Uh, Colin Woodard's book, uh, Lobster Coast, talks about so much of the tension between Maine and, New- and Massachusetts going back to the British Civil War, which was really a class war between one side of the country and the other. So in some respects, the people who came to Maine came from one side of that war, and the people who went to Massachusetts who owned the land here came from the other side of that civil war. So we had a 300, maybe more, year experience of being opposed to them and them being folks who had more money and who had a different set of values. Anybody else want to chime in on that? I mean, some of those themes still resonate, right? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that, you know, we're when we're talking about the quote-unquote two mains, um, we're probably talking more about identity. And um, how we determine our identity is, you know, there are so many different things that go into it. Where we're from, our uh, how much money we have, um, you know, our political preferences – our our culture and and so of course there is only there's only one main and there are many mains mm-hmm. um and and but and i think our identity obviously stems from our place you want to say anything about that matt yeah uh th- there have been various attempts to try to geographically uh, you know draw the lines on the map of the two mains uh you know they're I, I suppose one of the most common uh, perceptions is that the Kennebec River is, is the dividing line of the two mains. But then you also have uh, urban and rural divides, which do not uh, which, which do not um, align neatly from north to south. And then you you have coastal. Um, you know you you have a, a coastal uh, inland division, but. Uh, it, it, I, I think it comes down mostly to attitude and the way in which we think about our state. Mm-hmm. Well, and some people think it's just Portland and everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. And if you live in a really big city, you know, Chicago, Los Angeles, the idea of Portland as a city in that urban context is, I mean, it's not that big of a city, right. really. But to us, it's it seems very much more i don't know cosmopolitan i guess or something i found i found a, an old article from uh down east magazine where they printed a map of what they said was the two mains oh yeah great and uh this was from 1987 and it and it had the line um going right underneath skowhegan and bangor so skowhegan and bangor uh were in i guess i don't know the first or the second main and mm. everything else below the coast and the 
and um, all the urban, more urban places mm-hmm. were in in southern Maine. Um, but I don't know. I I think I think Matt's Matt has it there. You know that there are so many different ways to divide, um, and to what extent is that is that helpful? Yeah, maybe not so much, but in um, the recent presidential election, because we split the electors by congressional district, it sort of made it feel like the two mains were CD1 and CD2. And I know people often talk about it that way when it comes to ballot questions and other things, um, that these are two different political cultures. Yeah, I tend to think that um, the two mains idea is only somewhat geographic, and it's much more economic uh, and class-based. I'll give you an illustration. I live in Freeport, and uh, what happens there happens all up and down the coast, where – we're in a regional school with two small rural towns three miles away. And Freeport can never agree in voting with those two more rural towns. There is a huge divide. In fact, there was a big campaign to throw the rural towns out so that the more well-to-do folks in, in Freeport could spend all they want to spend on schools. Mm-hmm. And I and others fought that, and we won because it was a kind of further segregation by class. Uh, but you find that phenomenon all up and down the coast. So it's you don't have to be in Bangor or north of it to be in the other Maine. And, that again, that division is really economic. Well, and I mean, even on MDI, you could make the case that there are – communities that are on either side of the divide and the discussions about school consolidation and children going to schools on the other side of that divide are very heated. Schools are sort of a lightning rod for this whole issue, aren't they? And the the school consolidation debate, uh, you know, that that began now a a decade ago really highlighted that. Uh, And and the application um, was... You know, to rural Maine, whereas uh, whereas many of the bigger districts were simply exempt from the requirement to consolidate, but then and and the, the attitude has just become more and more potent uh, in our political atmosphere. Uh, you know, uh, the, every governor until the current one uh, explicitly rejected this concept that there were that there was this division among the two mains and we don't see that now, uh, you know, and the, the presidential election certainly highlighted the political differences. But at the same time, we've seen the urban and rural Maine become more and more interdependent economically as we've seen this political attitude really deepen. Well, talk about that economic interdependence. I want to circle back on the education piece of it later because um, I do have these questions about whether the school funding formula works as well in rural districts or in districts with declining property values. Uh, but we can come back to that in a minute. Talk about the inter- economic interdependence for a minute. Sure. And it, it's all just so interrelated. Uh, so if if you go back to just the 19... 19- 60s, Maine had one metropolitan area, uh, and now fast forward to today, and we have three where th- the majority of the population lives, uh, where, uh, you know, and those three 
economic, uh, those three metropolitan areas are responsible for at least three quarters of the economic activity in the state. The Portland area alone is responsible for more than half. Uh, but those three metropolitan areas have expanded geographically, which means that um, the, the people in those outlying areas of the metropolitan areas are are more and more dependent on the core cities and, and the service centers. And so uh, the three being them. just for people's... Oh, sure, yeah, Portland, Lewiston, Auburn, and Bangor mm-hmm. areas. Uh, and, you know, and ev- every 10 years we have the census, and uh, in, these are federally uh, defined based on, uh, based on the economic uh, relationships between mm-hmm. the, the towns and the cities in those metropolitan areas. Well, I, but if you don't live within that metropolitan service district, if you live outside of that, it has an effect on schools and hospitals and lots and lots of other services that it seems like are becoming increasingly tenuous in more rural areas of the state. I see you nodding. I'll go talk, talk about that. Well, later. I think it's important to stay focused on the economic changes that have been happening you mentioned 1960. Two great transformative changes have been happening in rural Maine or in the second Maine. One is the decline of rural work related to farming, forestry primarily, also fishing to a lesser extent, uh, replaced by machines. It's it's hard to reverse it. Uh, it isn't trade policy. It isn't policy in Augusta, Washington. It's machines that have replaced people. Uh, the second is the decline of the mills. Um, so a lot of folks who worked at mills, I mean, Bath Iron Works has people from 13 counties working at it. So, uh, but the mill, the decline of mills is the decline of serious, good-paying jobs with benefits. So you take those two things together, they drive a, a decline in population. I'm delighted that we're having this conversation because we haven't had this conversation enough, and I'm delighted that BDN has been doing this series on rural Maine. We're never going to bridge the divides unless we really can put ourselves into the shoes of the folks who have been living through that. They're frightened. They're angry. They're frustrated. They want change. And they must be incredibly sad, the decline of their community and their way of life. There it's must a, be grief involved. In it's that a too. very sad thing. You know, I, I often say I grew up in a family of mill workers and farmers, and there has been uh, a transformation in every family where the children of the last generation don't have jobs that are as good. They don't own their own homes. They hardly ever have a place on the lake. All the things that in 1960, 1970, you expected uh, if you were blue-collar person or, or farmer. Uh, so those are those are really heart-wrenching changes, and the more we talk about it, the better off we're going to be. Mm-hmm. Right. Go ahead, Erin. And, and to just put some numbers to that, absolutely, we know 19, from 1999 to 2015 in the Rim counties, so the most rural, the that line, our border with Canada, um, uh, we've seen uh, a loss of 20.67% of the the mostly working age population, which is 25 to 54. So that's that's about 21% of the working age population has declined, um, whereas in the remaining counties, it's declined 8.6%. Wow. So yeah. that that's one-fifth of the working age population that has yeah. moved away or whatever. 
And right now it's not projected to get better. The state's projections um, say that basically in those rim counties, we're looking at um, 93% of communities with fewer than 2,500 people will continue to lose population into 2034. That's where they go. So 93% of of communities, those smaller communities, fewer than 2,500, will continue to lose people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is uh, the Democracy Forum. You're tuned to WERU-FM. My name is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is the two Mains. Can we bridge the divide? Our guests this morning are Alan Karen, the owner of Karen Communications and the author of Maine's Next Economy and Reinventing Maine's Government. Aaron Rhoda is here with us, editor of Maine Focus for the Bangor Daily News, and Matt Stone, a journalist on the Bangor Daily News Maine Focus team. Um, we're going to be inviting your calls in about 15 minutes, so stay tuned for that. But we're talking about the essential characteristic of the two mains or the difference between the two mains being class and economy, jobs, loss of jobs. Um, and this is um, uh, you know, perhaps the central theme of this discussion and how it's affecting areas of our state differently from the others. And of course... Now maybe we can turn back to the education thing because declining population, declining property values, the way the school formula works. How what what do towns do when schools being so central to their identity start to see declining student enrollment, declining local funding? I mean, how do they keep opportunities alive for their kids in those communities? Yeah, that, that's a really difficult question. Um, as part of the the series that we did on rural Maine in the fall, I uh, I did a story about the Moosehead Lake area, which wants to hang on to its school because it is so central to the livelihood of Greenville and, and the surrounding area. Yet at at the same time, Greenville uh, Greenville pays more per student than virtually in in terms of local taxes. It pays more per student than virtually the entire state. So, I mean, the so there there are certain things that potentially could happen with with the school funding formula to um, to ease uh, some of some of the tensions. I, I mean, one of those tensions is that the school funding formula is based on property wealth, and if you're on a big lake. You you have uh, high value properties, which means that the funding formula thinks you uh, have this wealth that does not necessarily translate into incomes, uh, and so there there's been talk about better incorporating or incorporating uh, median or per capita income into the formula, uh, or providing some um, some method of relief uh, based on um, you know based on low incomes anybody else want to chime in on the education piece in school funding I mean this goes to lots of other services what obligations do we in one main owe to our co-citizens in the other main and I mean there was that interesting thing recently with the PUC where they decided against funding electricity on that island and taking that do you remember this and that decision, if you took that and applied it across the state, would mean everybody had to pay the 
entire freight of their whole infrastructure load, which would be untenable in rural communities. Um, yeah, just for just in terms of education, I think we see obviously when when school enrollments decline, and this is a, a very significant problem for so many districts, that the costs don't necessarily decline at the same rate, and in some cases, you know, maybe increase. And so there's this huge crunch to try to figure out how do you maintain education in places that really, really depend on it, because these are the kids who are going to be, you know, our future. They're going to be figuring out our problem, you know, how to, the answers to our, our future problems. And so this is probably one of the most important areas where we can invest as a state in, into education. Um, and yet it's also the source of so much anxiety and financial constraints. Well, and I, I wonder too, you know, cu- culturally whether, um, you know, all parents want the best for their kids. And I'm sure, you know, all parents want their kids to get the best education. But in some of these communities with declining population, as you've said, getting that great education means they're going to leave and contribute, you know, further to the hollowing out of those communities. Yeah, I, I think part of the part of the challenge with education, you know, it may be the second most important thing that that we have to contribute to in rural Maine. We being all of Maine, mm-hmm. so there's more that has to be done there. But so many times, as in this conversation, we're talking about the symptoms of the the effects of the economic decline. Um, and I talk to folks all over the state and. It's always the inclination to go attack the symptom. Yeah. And there are just so many of them we can attack. As schools decline, downtowns decline, churches decline, social networks decline. I mean, it's all a function of this larger economic decline. So part of what we have to talk about more is what can be done in rural Maine to regrow or to grow a new economy, which was a, a subject of a – of a big gathering we just did in Bangor with BDN as mm-hmm. one of the many sponsors and um, on Ma- rural Maine's next economy. Uh, we have to have that conversation. We have to have it continue over time. That sort of gets into the question of the the National Monument and recreational tourism and how controversial that was and remains. Um, you know, people are not universally embracing some of these opportunities. Why is that? Well, imagine yourself working in the mill in Millinocket, and you grew up there, and your dad worked there, too. And you expect and hope your kids will work there. Suddenly, the mill's gone. You can hardly believe it. You don't want to believe it. You want to hold on to the hope that it will come back. And you hold on, and you hold on. And at some point, uh, it begins to dawn on people uh, reluctantly. Uh, Bucksport's in a very similar situation right. now. Other communities are. Uh, that's a hard, painful thing to let go of because you know, uh, yeah, there could be more tourism, but how many guides can you have? How many B&Bs can you have? Oh, and by the way, uh, I might have to create one of those things. I never had to do that. I just went and punched the clock and did my work, and I did good work. But now I've got to create my own job or – I got to work, you know, mowing the lawn 
at the hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, why would anyone want to choose that ladder? If you do polling, I know people mm-hmm. have recently done polling on the sort of new economy stuff. What a surprise. People say, I don't want that stuff. I want the mills to come back. You know, one of the things that Donald Trump did uh, is promise to the American people that he would bring the mills back, uh, which isn't going to happen. But people want so much to believe that it could happen that they're willing to give anyone a shot who uh, is willing to say what they want to hear. Right. So, so this was, again, another thing about being sensitive to what people are feeling and why they're feeling it instead of there's too much of, of a tendency to – to you know, sort of attack people for not being smart or not seeing the beautiful advantages of the future, but change is hard. Yeah, and I'm sure you know on both sides of the two mains divide, we have um, preconceptions about each other that may not be entirely true. Um, what what would some of those be? You know, I mean, we th- there was a very derogatory comment made some time ago by a political candidate about guns and religion. You know, that's sort of one sort of nasty stereotype that's out there. But I'm sure um, there are equal perceptions about urban dwellers that are not so great either. I mean, how do we... I mean, what, I guess maybe I should call them out. What are they? And then how do we get by those? Anybody want to take a, a shot at that? Well, the, thir- I, <laughs> the third rail of the discussion here. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know that I want to articulate all of them, but I, I, I think um, when, I, so I, a few things. Alan raises some really good points about how we have a tendency to address symptoms of what is a fundamental economic transformation uh, just over over the past many uh, decades and. Um, which means that the how we how we relate to the land is really at, at the root of the transformation. Um, you know, Maine was built on um, the exploitation of natural resources, and and that powered industry and it powered wealth and it powered high-paying jobs uh, for a long time. Uh, and the and now the land does not have the same value in, in economic terms. Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess um, if I can just go back to Greenville for a second, mm-hmm. which which relates to this debate that we've had about the National Monument, um, you know, that if of course there would be a very understandable reluctance to settle to settle, and I put settle in in uh, air quotes for a future of of tourism oriented jobs when they're. You know, when when we're accustomed to high higher paying, uh, more comfortable lifestyle uh, mill jobs that have helped us for generations, um, so the the Moosehead Lake area, uh, you know, doesn't have the same tradition of paper mills that the Millinocket area does, but there, you know, the area was built on forestry. There was a, a big presence of manufacturing, uh, biomass uh, plant. In, and a, a resistance to embracing a, a future that's dependent on tourism. Uh, and that really began to change over time as, as the realization sunk in that, that this natural resource-based economy, um, the one that we know wasn't going to come back, but that a new 
natural resource-based economy, one that's based on Maine's natural beauty, uh, the Moosehead Lake area's natural beauty, was going to power uh, the future. Uh, so over time, there there's a realization uh, that can and likely will develop, and, and change is very difficult, but people can and do change. What do we owe each other on either side of the divide? I mean, yeah. you know, w- we support a broad infrastructure in rural areas with our tax dollars. They support service center provisions with their tax dollars. Are there more examples like that? Go ahead, anybody. Well, I, I think we owe it to each other to, to realize that we depend on each other. Um, Maine is just known for its natural beauty. Uh, that That's Maine's calling card. And we don't have that without rural areas, and we don't have those rural areas without people in them to... Um, to make those rural areas what they are. And then at the same time, those rural areas don't have, um, you know, they they don't have the possibility to grow their economies without um, the dependence on uh, the the services that are more and more concentrated in the more urban areas. So, you know, and and that's in very broad uh, in, in very broad terms, the the economic transformation that that we've seen, and um, and it, so it's a transformation to interdependence between rural and urban areas that I, I really uh, think we we owe it to ourselves to acknowledge. But culturally, I mean, it seems like independence and rugged individualism and standing alone is part of that other culture. Um, and attitudes towards government play in here too. You know whether you like government, embrace government, view government as us, or whether you view government as them, the enemy doing nefarious things to us. I mean, this is part of the attitude um, that shapes some of these cultural expectations, isn't it? Yeah. And yes, and I want to go back to your earlier question: What do we owe each other? Right. I think what we owe each other is to listen and to care about each other. And I know that sounds a little trite, but, you know, I'm one of the people, and there are a lot in Maine, who has lived in both Maines. And I'm always disappointed at how little people know about the other Maine and and resorting to stereotypes. And, you know, a lot of the Maine humor, Mm -hmm. by the way, has to do with two mains, in that case more defined as folks from away and folks from here. Just the, it was in that era the way it was defined. Uh, so, you know, I've been working for some years in this little group called Envision Maine, which is all about trying to get people in a place um, to talk together about the future. You know, a year ago we did one on climate change, and we had the largest chambers of commerce in the state and the largest environmental and energy groups co-hosting a thing. So that's just one piece of a larger mosaic of things that needs to happen that gets people talking with each other and listening to to each other. And in all the events I've been part of, people just come out of the woodwork. They want that to happen. Mm -hmm. They want you to understand them on both sides. And vice versa. It's hard for people to do it. Particularly I find harder in in the sort of coastal Maine, the educated Maine, the the professional uh, class of Maine because they they expect that 
everyone will listen to them, and they're used to it. And so I try to work hard to get everyone to listen to each other. And over time, you build understanding, then you build relationships, then you build affection. And the next thing you know, you can actually do some things together. At this point, I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Alan Karen, the owner of Karen Communications, Aaron Rhoda, editor of Maine Focus for the Bangor Daily News, and Matt Stone, a journalist on the Bangor Daily News Maine Focus team. Our topic today is Two Mains. Can we bridge the divide? If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or 469-0500 if you're calling locally. Um, We have both listener lines open, but um, if you do get through, uh, please take your answer off the line so that others can participate and don't wait till the last minute to call. Get your call in early. We have Yo from Tremont on the line right now. Go ahead, Good morning. Yo. Good morning. This is Yo in Tremont. I think it is a shame. The best jobs in Maine involve building battleships, whereas everywhere you look, there is a need for things to be built, repaired, and cleaned up. Why work for Megacorp? Invent your own job. It's time to stop talking about funding and start talking about cooperating. Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Thanks, Yo. Anybody want to comment or make a... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting that this morning I was just reading an article about entrepreneurial uh, tendencies that uh, and so it just so turns out that rural areas have higher rates of entrepreneurialism. Uh, they also the businesses that people in rural areas create also tend to survive longer uh, than than their urban counterparts. Um, so I, I I suppose if we're we're looking toward the future and look, looking toward building things, um, you know, I, I, this might sound a little trite, but I, I think we we have um, at least part of what it takes in rural Maine, and in, in in that the area is more likely to be entrepreneurial, and um, you know, the businesses are, are a little bit more likely to stay with us. Create your own job. Thank right. you. We have another caller on the line, David from Brooklyn. Go ahead. You're on the air. Yeah, thanks for the thanks for the show. I think this is exactly what we need to be talking about uh, a lot more than we are. Uh, uh, it's not right at all to be uh, 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 talking about how to uh, take care of each other and, uh, you know, help the people amongst us that, that need help. Uh not trade at all. It's it's vital, vitally important to us that we that we put that kind of conversation at the top of the list. Uh, I there's a fictional uh, 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 account which has yet to be produced uh, of a state uh, which could be Maine, which uh, which decides uh, by popular consent that it is only going to consume goods which it has produced within it. Uh, this is a. This is a. Uh, the, there's a, a, a campaign for governor in which that's the only platform, uh, the the only plank in the platform. We're going to make 
we're going to make what we need. We're going to figure out how to do it, and we're not going to buy stuff that isn't made in the States. And we go through an extreme period of, uh, of hardship while we're figuring that out. But we're into it, right, because uh, we're, we're all in this state together deciding that we're going to bring back productivity to the state. And we know how to do this. You know, we're, we're Yankee in, in ingenuities, and we can figure out how to make what we need to make, you know. Thanks, it's David. That's very far-fetched. That's a but really intriguing idea. Let's get our guests to comment on we that. We've got to start thinking at this degree because yeah. the challenges are extreme. And, you know, uh, 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 being a guide in a state park ain't going to cut it, nor is being an adjunct to the computer industry going to cut it. We've got to figure out how to do what we used to do over again and and choose to do that. Thanks, David. What Anybody want to comment on David's idea about... Um, buying locally, producing locally. Well, that was a centerpiece of uh, Maine's Next Economy, the book you mentioned, which people can get on Amazon if you like, that this transition in a way that we're undergoing forces us to return to who we were before the mills came. Uh, and, and what we were 125 years ago, everyone in Maine was a small business person. Everyone was an entrepreneur. If you include farming, uh, you had to be. You had to be resourceful or you couldn't survive in this climate with these conditions. So that's part of our DNA and the, and the challenge. Now, when the mills came, uh, you know, that took a lot of people off the land and went to the mills. And now it's hard to go back. But we do need to build a new kind of self-sufficiency. Whether we can get to uh, the goal just mentioned uh, is another matter. But we're really talking about rebuilding an economy from the bottom up mm-hmm. uh, based on doers, entrepreneurs, innovators, resourceful Mainers. We um, ha- yeah. Go ahead, Aaron. Oh, I was just going to say, you, you, a state can't rely just on selling its natural resources or, you know, um, shipping things out of state. We have to be able to build something to, to as we say, add value, uh, value-added products. And, and so... How we do that is um, is the big question. Yep. Yeah, and and at the same time, when when we add that value, we really add the value when we export something. Um, so, I mean, an export could be hosting tourists from out of state, uh, as much as you know the common uh, wisdom is that that we don't like it. That uh, you know we we depend on it, um, and we wouldn't really tend to see prosperity unless we have something to export. And import probably both ways, right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Peggy from Ellsworth, you have another caller. Peggy, go ahead. Yes. uh, This is all extremely uh, marvelous and necessary. I'm really glad to hear it. Um, I've been trying to listen as well as remember what my thoughts were at the beginning. Um, I'm a person who was born and raised here, have, you know, Irish, Native American, and French-Canadian background. So, you know, um, it's it's an interesting mix. And I, I'm one of those people who went away and came back, and many people do. And sometimes when you come back, you know, you wonder if you're really still a <laughs> an old-timer or not. But the thing is... Um, we're always, no matter where we are, I've been, I've worked in rural America at many places, and I've been to Northern California, which is just as rural as it is here, 
and there's a lot of transitioning for there's always time in transition that, that affects all of us um and it is incredible the amount of you know ingenuity that we still have you know that is like you said um uh, the, you know it's in our dna and you know whether you're yankee and this is how we you know were you know from the time of the beginning um you know so we are in one of those we're sort of on a crest of some kind of massive change because of so many things going on in the rest of the world so true and this is you know maine is an opportunity i mean it, we are here and it's it's beautiful it's right. not just that it it's um we're on the cutting edge in many ways so you know we have creative people it's surprising how many people in the two different you're pointing out kind of two different areas, but there's like maybe a few others. But right. um, the likenesses that we have that are what bring us together. Margaret, so, we have another caller yeah. waiting, so I'm okay. going to ask you to wrap it up if you I'm don't done. mind. Okay. Oh, no, I mean, I don't want to cut you off. But if... No, I'm, that was my point. All right. You know, and any comments you have about that? You know. Great. Thank, okay. Yeah, thank you so much. What about that on the cusp of a great wave? I think that's exactly true. And, uh, you know, everything I work on um, is relentlessly optimistic about Maine's ability to weather this change and to come up on the other side um, in a better shape than we have ever been. Um, and, you know, we've talked a little about Maine's brand, but um, this is a cool place. This is a place where a lot of people would like to come to if the economy could support them. So um, I think we've got great days ahead, but mm-hmm. we've, we've got to figure out how to get there. Yeah. And I, I think I would maybe just caution that the great uh, that we have ahead will look different from the great that, that we had. Totally. Um, and, and that means that some places will be a lot smaller than, than they were. Um, some places might um, decide that, that they just don't want to persist as communities um, whereas others really find the the asset that sets them apart. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Alan Karen, the owner of Karen Communications, Aaron Rhoda, editor of Maine Focus for the Bangor Daily News, and Matt Stone, journalist and the Bangor Daily News Maine Focus team. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation right now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500. Please join us now. We're taking your calls. Call um, and join the conversation. Margaret, are you still on the air? I'm waiting. Oh, sorry. I That's thought okay. that was Margaret. That was just uh, that, that was, was just Peggy. Uh, I think. Oh, sorry. I got confused. Go yeah. ahead, Margaret. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, you're on. I'm on. Okay. Um, oh, well, I'm heartened by this discussion. It's something I ruminate about all the time, and I don't find a lot of people. Maybe a few more than before, and maybe it's growing uh, of interest in this kind of uh, topic. But I think it's urgent, and probably just because of dramatic changes, we'll all be waking up. Uh, I already see it here in the town of Orland, 
uh, we've, we're, we're going through a process of the comprehensive planning process, and it's very healthy. At first, it was pretty boring, and then people were in their little bubbles, and um, it just seemed kind of discouraging. But um, I went to a meeting last night, and uh, some of the players are there, and they're, they're relating to each other a lot more. There's much more, uh, they're more engaged, they're more enthusiastic, and they're more collaborative. Uh, so I'm heartened by that. Um, but I'd lo- also like to say that, uh, you know, we I- I've been worried for a long time about uh, the fact that um, we are losing our skill base. I mean, we, we have youngsters now coming along who, at that age, two, a couple of generations ago, they knew how to cook. They knew how to uh, repair their clothes. They knew how to take care of themselves. Now they are on their cell phones. Uh, they haven't been taught how to um, cook for themselves, so they're eating junk food and getting obesity. <laughs> I mean, they're they're kind of invo- they're very vulnerable, um, and they, they don't have the skills. And I think we need to get that skill level back. There's still plenty of old timers who have a lot of skills for how to repair things and how to do things and be inventive. Um, it's that kind of mentality that I think that youngsters who grew up on farms learned. Because when you live on a farm, uh, a small farm, you have to know how to repair everything. How to do everything, yeah. And um, I've seen that. Uh, youngsters who uh, are, you know, their early 30s even, who can fix everything because they grew up on a farm. Yeah. But the same age group who didn't, um, they just think... Uh, well, you know, I have to get a job in a corporation or something. So what about that to our guests? I mean, we're talking about life skills and um, economic mm-hmm. skills, trade skills, lots of range of skills. Is there a decline in useful skills, and how do we sort of turn that mm-hmm. curve around? I don't know how to measure um, whether those types of skills are declining, but I I was heartened to hear about Orland's comprehensive planning process and um, people coming together to talk about the future of their town uh, because I think ultimately a place... A place's future is decided by the people who live there. Um, it's it's um, something that comes from local leadership and uh, and local community members. And so, um, I think that's just such an important thing to emphasize. Mm-hmm. Anybody else want to comment on that? I think this question ties back to the education conversation we were having. We had a, a forum last summer on education. Um, in, at Bowdoin College. It was fantastic. And the consensus that came out, it was mostly teachers, some administrators. It wasn't sort of the big chiefs of education. It was folks are actually working on the ground uh, in both public schools and charter schools and others. Um, and the consensus that came out of it was similar to the caller's concern that we have to, with this transitioning economy, you have to stop preparing jobs for people for jobs that don't exist or won't exist. But we need much more practical skill learning in schools. Um, the, the economic development director of Bangor at one of our sessions said, you know, kids in rural Maine in the, in the future are really going to know, need to know how to grow a company, how to build a job, how to run things, how to fix things. And I think that's exactly right. And uh, But, you know, kids don't learn, for instance, how to be entrepreneurs right. until they're in graduate school. Yep. And most aren't. It's interesting to me that the education systems that are growing in Maine over the last 10 years are the ones that are more practically oriented. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. I mean, people are voting with their feet to go to these places that make sense for them in terms of what they need. And I in think we're going to see more of it, and we yeah. have to see more of it. We have another caller on the line, Rick from Waldoboro. Are you there? Rick hung up. Oh, sorry. Okay, we'll keep going with our with our own questions, but I'll remind our listeners we are taking your calls right now, 866-625-9378. Um, do we see the new invigoration of an entrepreneurial economy in these rural areas reversing the ebb and flow of population? I mean, you talked about depopulation. Is it possible to attract people back to some of these rural areas with more vibrant economic opportunity? Potentially in the right areas uh, that, that really have something to offer. Um, I To go back to the Moosehead Lake region, they, they had a um, over the past couple of years, they've been going through this really comprehensive process where they've decided that their future is really in a, a high-value uh, wilderness tourism. Um, you know, and that does not um, that doesn't preclude a growth in other areas. Um, but the the consensus was that the place um, needs something to offer, um, and that. Uh, and, and that what it offers is this beautiful wilderness where where people who can work from anywhere could uh, relocate. Um, you know, they'll, they'll perhaps first get exposure through tourism, then maybe come back as tourists, maybe want to buy a second home, maybe uh, have the, the luxury of being able to relocate uh, there permanently and work remotely. Uh, so, I, I mean, that that that's a potential growth area for, well, those, for Maine. Those of us who live here in, near the MDI area have seen a lot of that happening on the island already. Rick from Walderboro is back. So, Rick, go hey, ahead. Rick. You're on the air. I'm uh, interested if any of you would like to discuss the possibility of uh, people moving to Maine with uh, climate change. As it gets warmer, it seems to me that uh, people are going to want to move no- north, and I'll listen off there. Thanks. Yeah, I've, I've written about that. I have a column in the Sunday Telegram and the Central Maine papers every weekend. Um, all species are moving north, uh, and humans are not immune. So while the migrations have been southward over the last few decades, uh, we have to begin to prepare ourselves for northward migrations, particularly if we become known as a sort of as a center of innovation and entrepreneurship and bottom-up uh, economy. That is going to happen. It's happening now. It's just reference because people now at, at higher level jobs can live in one place and work at another more than ever before. Uh, so we're beginning to see that all across the state. Interesting. People who are living here. Uh, by the way, on your earlier question, uh, you know, can we do this? Uh, one of the fortunate things we have is an actual example in Maine of what the next economy looks like and what it could be built and how it could be built. And that's from the whole organic foods and local foods movement, which really came out of this, of a movement into Maine back to the landers in the 70s and is the perfect illustration of how you build bottom-up economies. People collaborate, they learn from each other, they organize events, they now have the common ground fair. It's, it's, it's built itself from scratch, yeah. really, as an entrepreneurial network. And guess what happened? It, it sort of gave rise to the foodie movement mm-hmm. and now the brewery movement 
Uh, and to me, it's a perfect template. If you could take that template to other sectors of the economy, um, extraordinary things would happen. Yep. We've got two callers waiting, so I'll go to Frank from Lemoyne. You're next. Go ahead, Frank. You're on the air. Yeah, hi. Oh, I moved here, Hitchback here, because my car blew up in 1972, coming here from Canada. I came here without seeing home movies as a beauty. I didn't see any job description. People who... I don't think anybody moves to Maine for a job unless they got it out of the state. And who wants to grow the population of Maine? Not Maine. I'm 71 and selfish, I guess. <laughs> Maine is, has, is a unique place on the East Coast, and we should keep it the unique place that it is. The people left here to go to Connecticut to work, and then they came back, a lot of people who are in their 80s these days. And there is a new economy here that the fellow was just saying, but that's that's mostly geared because uh, it's the high it's the high end cost of buying organic food and, and homemade spun woven clothing. It's for the Prius drivers, not for the old Chevy pickup drivers. So we have to come up with an economy that's for the whole state. Because the whole state is completely different on the coast than it is to the west of I ninety five or in pockets inland from the coast of Maine in Hancock and Washington and Waldo County. Belfast might be an upper yuppie town, but go three miles inland, and it's still the beans of Egypt, Maine. Yeah. And that's the way it is. And all these idiots that run for politics talking about we're going to bring your jobs back is a bunch of BS. They don't, you can cut trees here, but the trees, when it gets turned into a board, it's going overseas where they work for nothing. They're never going to stay here again. The new economy, with the guys talking about organic farming, we need a governor that's going to come in and say we're going to become the hemp, not the marijuana, the growing. That's all BS. That's just another way to get our money. Thanks, Frank. We're I'm going to ask. We're going to be hemp farmers and turn it into clothing. It burns better than wood for fuel. Thanks. Northern Maine should be the hemp plantation of America. I'm going to ask you to wrap it up. I'm not talking about smoking, and I'm talking about wearing it. I understand. Thanks, Frank. I'm going to ask you to wrap it up because we do have another. I know you are. (laughs) Thanks a lot. I mean, he is talking about the class divide that you mentioned first, Al. Do you want to comment on that? Well, sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is where we started. Right, right, exactly. This is the divide. Uh, And so the question is, how do we get beyond it? And look, if if we have 10,000 small farmers in Maine uh, who are selling to people at the upper end of the income scale, okay, that's good. Those are 10,000 jobs. If we're shipping products like uh, Stonewall Kitchen project products to the world, fantastic. If they're willing to pay top premium price, hallelujah. Uh, but the point is these are, these are important jobs. They don't stack up to mill jobs. It's a t- different lifestyle, right. but they're still extremely valuable. We've got one last caller, and then we're going to have to wrap up. And Tom uh, from Vermont and Maine, you're on, but we've only got a few minutes, so I'll ask you to make it brief. Go ahead. Tom? I'll try. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, I bought an 1880s house about uh, eight years back. Uh, it was a dumpster building, and I uh, tore out the uh, bottom floor of the building and put it back in, you know, and basically made it into uh, a reclaimed building. You know, it's a skill that is, you know, kind of desperately needed as I see it in Maine, you know, to honor kind of the traditions of of the place. And, um, you know, we're at a very interesting point where, you know, I think that a little technological regression would be a good thing and a move towards 
you know, traditional arts. Uh, I see that there's a lot of abandoned farms, a lot of abandoned buildings out in Washington County, uh, plenty of room for farming. Um, and we desperately need it because the infrastructure right now is collapsing in a way, and, and we're not necessarily there. I will put in one caveat, which is that with global warming, the sea's coming inland. You know, where it's going to stop, nobody knows, or how long that's going to take. But the point is that uh, this is an excellent place to study this kind of thing, you know, and to up our understanding of, of you know, embrace global warming and whatever's coming after that. I mean, we may be on the edge of an ice age. So yeah. how are we going to take care of ourselves and our population and where are we going to train it? You know, so my idea was to have a traditional arts center, you know, That's and great. start regaining these skills. I have all of those skills, you know, not every single one. You know, I'm not a knitter, you know, I'm not a, uh, you know, a weaver. But, you know, I've I've lived and worked with people who have those skills. Oh, my gosh, Tom, there's our music. Our music's coming up. <laughs> I want to give each of our guests just one quick last word, and then we'll have to sign off. Go ahead, Erin. Wonderful. Um, so I grew up in an 1830s farmhouse um, on a small farm, and it's a continual renovation process. And, you know, my parents have taken on renovating their very, very old barn just for the sake of they want to keep the tradition yep. alive, and this is a way of life. Um, that needs to be preserved. Al, quick. Well, thank you. This is exactly the conversation we need to have, and we need to both appreciate the place and the people here. Matt? Yeah, and thank you very much for having me, and uh, I, I guess I just go back to dependent, uh, interdependence, um, that we might think there's this huge division, but we really depend on each other in the end. Thank you all so much. We really are out of time. Our guests, Alan Karen, owner of Karen Communications, Aaron Rhoda, editor of Main Focus for the Bangor Daily News, and Matt Stone, a journalist with the Bangor Daily News Main Focus team. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in our series. We'll see you here next month, the third Friday of the month, when our topic will be fake news. Who can you trust? Thanks a lot. Have a good day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Support for WERU comes from our generous listeners. Thank you. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social